welcome all of you, including our colleagues from Guagua, uh, to this roundtable discussion and dialogue on the protests. Uh, from the humanities faculty, we thought it prudent that we, we lead this discussion in terms of uh, a round table and also to go forward in mapping uh, the path through in as far as student protests are concerned. Uh, we are aware that student protests will be with us for some time and we need to engage and also to talk about these issues from the humanistic point of view, because that is also important for us. It is only when we dialogue and only when we engage with each other, we can meet each other halfway and understand the problems that the students are faced with, and the students also understand the problems that the institutions of higher learning are faced with. And it is along that line that we are saying, let us come together and then let us talk and let us converse and let us dialogue in order to, to understand each other. Because some of the challenges that we are faced with as higher uh, uh, institutions uh, are some of the external factors not because of factors emanating from the education sector, but the factors that are beyond our control, but which have an impact on what we are doing as an institution of higher learning. Therefore, we need to talk about that. And then we are glad today that we've got a lineup from the humanities uh, staff members, including Dr. Miyama from Student Affairs, whereby we are going to engage and then dialogue, and then as well as asking not difficult questions, but asking critical questions in terms of moving forward. We are, you are all welcome, ladies and gentlemen, and then we are looking forward. This is just a first of its own kind uh, dialogue, and then we are envisaging in future that will continue with the dialogue. And then you are well, all welcome from the faculty of the humanities. And then I said last week when I was talking to students during the student in Daba, they asked me how many faculties do we have on, at the University of the Free State? And I said, we've got the three. The first one is the faculty of the humanities. The second one is the faculty of the humanities. And the third one is the faculty of the humanities. Thank you, you are all welcome. <laughs> yeah. Um... We are so proud to be part of these three faculties. Um, <laughs> there's no other way. Um, without uh, wasting any time, uh, I would like to call upon the Rector and Vice-Chancellor, Professor Peterson. Thank you very much, Program Director. And uh, Professor Chuala, I can't make that statement. Uh, um, I will be in deep trouble. Um, so uh, first of all, I also would like to say uh, welcome to I, my fellow panelists uh, and for the Faculty of Humanities for taking the initiative to organize such a discussion. I think it's, uh, it's uh, hopefully the start of many of these discussions. And I'm glad that there's also uh, a large group that is uh, dialing in via, via uh, I think it's Teams, the Teams platform. Um, so I hope that they could they could hear us. Um, now I've been given 
20 minutes. Uh, I don't know where the additional five minutes come from, uh, but I'll take it if it's given to me. And and I thought I I, I want to I want to highlight probably about six uh, uh, sort of larger areas, and hopefully out of the out of the debate, one could unpack it. And I'm pretty sure some of the panelists will touch on some of those. Uh, and 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 the ideas is not. To go into detail, hopefully the discussion will help us, but in fact to, to, to frame some of the thinking. Now I want to start off by saying uh, by by indicating that a university, and I don't want to use an organization because we're talking about student students, uh, student protest or protests in general at university campuses, but as a university, we have staff and we have students. And the task, the mandate of the university to properly execute that mandate of the university, um, university management have to ensure that they all uh, um, um, are welcomed at the institution. They all have the ability and the enabling environment to execute what they need to execute, either their studies or the teaching and learning or their research or the engaged scholarship, that they should do that to the best of their ability. That is my role as the accountable officer, and I engage with my leadership team, uh, and that leadership team is quite extensive. It's not only the executive, it's the, it's the, uh, those are the deans, the senior leadership group, the heads of departments, the lecturers, the, uh, uh, the support staff to be able to do that. And, and, and we've got formal structures in the university to facilitate that. Because if we haven't got that, the head of the institution will have to do all of that. So we've got formal structures which have delegated functions to ensure that staff and students uh, have got an environment where they can do what they need to do and why they are here. Firstly, appointed, or secondly, the uh, not necessarily secondly, but also from the student perspective, while they enroll for a specific a qualification or program. And to do that, it's important for us as looking at the university, as managing the university, to engage with our stakeholders, to engage with our staff and our students, to understand, do they have the support? What are the issues that hamper or inhibit those, uh, um, those uh, uh, activities to be executed? And also to understand how they feel about the institution and how they feel about themselves in the institution. And again, that engagement is for us very critical. Um, but sometimes, and I want to emphasize sometimes, there are in that engagement, in the way that we manage things, there are disagreements uh, and that we don't always agree on how things are being executed or how things are being handled. And, and that disagreement, uh, first of all, should be mediated or should be resolved. But if it can't be resolved and it can't be mediated, it can lead to protests. And, 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 and I want to, to emphasize that protest is a constitutional right. And we respect that right at the University of the Free State. And I'm pretty sure that I can also talk about the sector, uh, um, respect that right. But we also, and, 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 and I want to emphasize that we do have, did have the campaigns, Roads Must Fall and Feast Must Fall, and other campaigns that really push specific issues 
And the protest really helped us to get to those, uh, uh, to be resolved somehow. And in other instances, it couldn't be resolved. But protest, the role that protests play is quite critical. But the question is how that protest is being conducted. And there are rules of protest. In fact, the Constitution and uh, uh, tried to assist and guide us how that protest should be conducted. Yeah, at the United States, we, we have... Uh, can I just ask somebody to mute themselves there? Thank you. Uh, here at the University of the Free State, we have developed a whole series of protocols. They're all muted, uh, Rector. We must find out who muted the rector. <laughs> 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 uh, um, I don't know, maybe something that I pushed here. But the second point, as we engage with, uh, with, with all, use the term engagement, is to ensure that the voices are being heard. The student voice and the staff voice. Now, I'm going to focus primarily on the students. The staff, as I said, the, the, the structures that we have, we have unions, and we engage with the unions through formal structures on a regular basis. But there could also be disagreement, which could also lead to protest. Luckily, we haven't had that uh, um, the staff protest, at least during the time when I was here, uh, um, and hopefully we would be able to continue with that. But, but for me, is where there is unhappiness. There need to be modes of escalation. And that mode of escalation should still focus on engagement. Is there somebody, yeah, I don't know where's the oh, IT, IT colleagues, because it seems to me just mute me automatically. Uh, um, but all right, uh, Joy, you must just check whether, whether there is, uh, when the mute button is on. Uh, um, so so when, we, when we're talking about protest, uh, um, we, in, in, in our perspective, we can define peaceful protest. Right, so there's there's a protest that people would indicate that we're going to protest on this particular issue, uh, uh, um, and 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 there are rules in terms of how those protests are being conducted. So it's, I call that peaceful protest. Then there are disruptive protests. So the protests are there to disrupt either classes or or, or specific flow of activities, and 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 to a certain extent. We try to manage that. Uh, we do allow some of that. But, but I'll tell you where the dilemma comes in. Because I, that reason, uh, there's a reason why I started with students that we are accountable to look after, to look at. If, if you have a disruptive protest and we allow a level of disruption, but if you continue to do that, 
you're actually also infringing the rights of those students and staff that do not protest. And my task is also, as the accountable officer of the university, to ensure how do we respect the results or the rights of those. So disruptive protests can happen, but there need to be levels of what, what is the understanding of disruption. And then there's a third protest, which I called violent protests. There is where uh, uh, um, we, we, we threaten uh, the, the safety of our staff and our students and also our assets. Now that is, in, in my language, is called criminality. And we can't, we can't allow that to happen. So in terms of violent protest, where there are elements, clear elements of criminality, we have zero tolerance for that at the University of the Free State. And therefore we need to then ask the criminal process to, to, to take care of that specific activity. But how do we manage uh, uh, protests at the, uh, at the University of the Free State? And I, I want to, to again emphasize the word engagement. Engagement will run concurrently to all of the other things that we are doing because we need to engage. I believe that that's the only way to be able to get sustainable solutions to whatever the challenges are. But if you do have disruptive uh, uh, um, protests up to a level which, which we can't allow, we do have a security, uh, uh, um, uh, um, safety and security strategy. And that safety and security strategy was carefully designed to not criminalize the students. So we have three tiers of engagement on the, on the safety and security strategy. The one is that we have got our campus, protect, our campus uh, uh, protection officers, um, and those are, 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 are the people that you see around on campus. They are really there to protect you from the outside uh, uh, people. You know, if there are if there are dangers from outside, their role is to look after our staff and our students. And if there are disruptions, their role really is to identify where the disruptions are, because they would be conflicted. On the one hand, they have to look after you, and on the other hand, when you start to disrupt—not you, but the students—start to disrupt, then they would come in and they have to. They have to then handle that disruption. So we said that their task is very specific, is to, un to understand and reduce the level of conflict between the two. Then we have close protection officers, our second tier. Those are normally uh, security vetted security companies that we get in to help us, they unarm, and they are there to help us manage the disruption. The last point, if we can't, if instance doesn't happen or can't get to resolve it, we get to the police. Now, when the police come onto campus, they take the accountability, not the accountability, the decision-making out of my hand. Because they, what they do is they assess the environment and they said, we do X, Y, and Z. Unfortunately, what they do, if there are implications, it comes back to me as the accountable officer. So that's the reason why we don't 
really want to have police on campus. But that is the way to keep the police, because as soon as the police on campus, the, the chances of arrest is quite high, and that will lead to a criminal record. And we try to manage it that way. We, we, we do know what the issues are. The, uh, often the issues are re around registration. It's about NISFAS, which are most, most, most of the NISFAS issues are external. So we are sort of secondary managers of that and we can't change things. Like for instance, the private accommodation issue at Kwakwa at the moment. It's a, it's, a, it's a rule that the Department of Education Training have signed off. It's given to NISFAS to implement. And NISFAS say to the institution, this is how we're going to implement it. As an institution, we can't change it. And 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 they and we at the moment busy with the process to engage with NISFAS. But sometimes those things are out of our hands. But I I, I want to make just two final points, uh, uh, program director. Um, uh, you know, the NISFAS, the gender-based violence issue is a third issue. Decolonization could be an issue. Uh, um, but but for me, those are issues that we could engage on and come up with a with hopefully sustainable solution. But the other issue that is something that is very hard to grapple with, and that's our political influences, uh, um, that sometimes are embedded in our election of student leaders uh, in, in, and, and into, say, for instance, a, uh, a, an SRC or an ISRC. And we need to understand that. We need to understand uh, how it takes place and how can external political influence impact uh, uh, um, student elections or student leadership. And that sometimes complicates things. And for me, uh, we are trying to grapple with that and say, well, you know, how, what is the best way of trying to resolve that particular issue? Um, um, and and often in my induction of, of campus SRCs and ISRCs, I said that the role of student leadership is not only political activism. It is about the academics. It is about culture. It is about sport. It is about debate. And there's a lot of other things. And I often think that we don't get to that. Because if we want a well-rounded graduate, you will have to focus on So I want to, I want to, uh, um, to end off, uh, um, and then I will want to just refer to a statement that was made uh, uh, earlier this month by another academic at another university. So I, I want to emphasize the University of the Free State will always welcome protest. We won't, we won't squeeze protest because we believe it's a, it's a right. As long as it contributes to the betterment of the university. Uh, um, and the betterment and the university is really about our staff and our students. They are the university. So as long as those protests are up to assist us in the betterment of the university. It should be done in understanding and respect because sometimes we find in the in the protest action there is not a really understanding uh, why we can't move on X and Y. And 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 that understanding is for me quite quite important because if you don't understand it then it becomes uh, uh, an entitlement conversation or narrative that comes through. And that narrative is often a narrative that is not sustainable 
but we should focus on continuous engagement. And I've been emphasized that all the time. And never to challenge the safety and the protection of our staff and our students and our assets. We should never allow that to happen because then we threaten what the university is about. It's, it's what we call a culture of care. Uh, um, and that's been one of our projects as well, a culture of care. Now, there was a Professor Carl von Holt, and most probably some of you would know him. He's a sociologist at WITS. He gave in his inaugural lecture uh, um, probably a few weeks ago. Uh, um, and it's quite interesting to, to listen to his organ lecture, but there was one aspect, because he also talked about protests, but not only protests at universities, protests in society. And we believe that some of what comes on the university campuses also come, off, come from our society, and we have to understand that. So he said that democracy, which is nearly a generation old, pivots to violence. So we see that in service delivery protests. We see that in the looting and destruction. We see that sometimes in political assass assassinations, if you, you've picked that up, we, we also see the, see the rise of xenophobia. And he called it the rise of the violent democracy. And it's, it, it's a, uh, I, don't, I want, don't want to go into the debate now, but he argued that we have an, an, an a new kind of order that is busy developing, an order that is disordered, is managed by disorder and dysfunction. And, 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 and although I don't necessarily agree that that is embedded uh, in, in our society, I think the importance is that we need to ensure that that disorder and dysfunctional, the way that he quoted it, is not something they take off. Uh, um, and, and I sometimes get shivers in my spine if you talk about the economy and economists say was the increase in the fuel price that's going to come and the increase in poverty and inequality and, and the fact that uh, um, the current government can't respond to that effectively, that what we've seen last year in KwaZulu-Natal start again and 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 I don't want even want to think about that but for me uh, uh, chair is those are some of the aspects that I think is important to understand uh, first of all what the role of the university management is how do we manage protests but how do we engage and should be engaging with protests going forward thank you Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Prof, for outlining uh, quite succinctly the invest ecosystem. Um, now we're going to the nice part as well. Um, I really can't wait to hear what uh, the colleagues have to say. And thank you, Prof, for setting the scene there. We have a roving mic. Um, Prof, you also used to be my boss, uh, Prof Matevesi. Um, would you? I think come to the podium, I think. Maybe coming to the podium is best. Um, so your 15 minutes start now. <laughs> it's gonna be very difficult here. 
Central Cassier, Mr. McGeyser. Uh, program director, perhaps I should start uh, by thanking you and also perhaps just to thank the deanery of the Faculty of U U Humanities, Prof. Hudson and Prof. Twala. Uh, it is a privilege to be able to participate in this forum event this afternoon. And I haven't planned this, uh, but somehow I am acting as, or I'm assuming the role of a protagonist, where I have been tasked to set the scene in terms of what are the implications of what many of you knows as service delivery protests, but what I and some of the scholars that I identify with call community protest, uh, because one had to be very cautious to define protest directed against municipalities primarily as service delivery uh, protests. What I indicated was something that I did not plan, but uh, because I wanted to give you a background where I come from. Now, remember what is my task. My task is to look at general protests, community protests in South Africa. And I have to emphasize over the past eight, 10 years, I was involved in more than 40 case studies across South Africa. In 2013, a three-year project funded by uh, the National Research Foundation led to the publication of a book, Civil Strife Against Local Governance, the dynamics of community protests in South Africa. And in that research, I focus because in South Africa, we believe that it is only predominantly in predominantly black South Africans that are engaged in community protests, but predominantly white communities do also engage in protest. And what happens in terms of your predominantly white communities, it is in the form of highly structured uh, ratepayer associations, and they use the tactic of withholding rates and taxes. And I can refer to a couple of towns in South Africa where the communities are delivering services on behalf of the municipality. Sunnyshof in uh, Northwest, there's a small town, an Afrikaans name, but if loosely translated, a river without end, but it's an Afrikaans town, Rafirs on their end, and many others. I also hear in the Free State. Uh, but I, I indicated that I think perhaps from the very outset, uh, something that I had to mention because one key trend in terms of community protest is that perceptions also leads to protest. Now, remember what is a perception? A perception can be right and it can be wrong because it's a perception. And one perception, and I, I do not have a crystal ball to be able to predict what my fellow panelists 
is going to state or what is their viewpoint. And Joy, uh, Prof. Uh, Owen, perhaps I should mention you at this stage. But however, what I do want to emphasize, uh, because not only students might just get the purpose of this dialogue completely wrong. The purpose of this dialogue should not be seen, and I think uh, the rector also emphasized this point. This is not an outright condemnation of protest, because we all know that protest actually is a main modality of expression of social movements in South Africa, and it's one key element that we should actually uh, you know, celebrate in South Africa where people have the right uh, to, to, to protest. Now, returning to some of the key trends in terms of community protest, I'm also going to limit my, myself to six key points that I strongly believe that somehow they do have uh, implications for student protest. I'm not an expert on, 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 on student protest, but as I've indicated, more than 40 case studies in South Africa. Now, the first book, which was primarily on community protest, based on that research, a three-year research study, and I call this my own personal research streams, I found that in your mining towns, the service, so-called service delivery protest, does not necessarily has to do with service delivery issues. It also has to do with their adversarial relations between a mining company and the community, but it has been peddled as protest that is against the municipality. At the end of the day, the protest is not directed against the mine, but against the municipality. So that led to another publication, social, social licensing uh, and, uh, in mining in South Africa, because there the notion is that communities are fighting for their rights to control uh, the, the mineral rights there. Uh, but that second research also funded by the National Research Foundation. And I think most of you who knows about my work will understand this. I also probably during the thought leader a ship session presented about this. Is this whole notion uh, what people will regard as perverse uh, incentive, but what I call transactional activism. And this is one of the key trends in service delivery protests that I are uh, in community protests that I think plays a significant role or have significant implications for student protests. Uh, the rector mentioned the influence of external forces uh, at, at, at a university setting. So what I found also, uh, but this is something that I'm still working on, uh, uh, actually the book proposal. Uh, uh, that I'm working on. But what I found from the second case study was that the way state actors, and state actors can be a provincial government uh, representative, it can be uh, somebody from national, uh, but also municipal officials. Instead of dealing with the fundamental 
issues of communities, what they will do. Remember, if you are a, a protest leader, one of the goals, if you want to, in terms of social movements, if you want to reach the objectives of the social movement, there need to be engagement. And unfortunately, what I found was that these engagement practices, that is where sometimes some of the core protest, protesters, most of you will regard that as cooptation, will be offered incentive to try and stop the protest. Now, I can tell you there are areas in South Africa on an annual basis without fail. It has been proven there's credible evidence, scientific evidence, even in my sleep, I can tell you. Kuruman, there will be a protest in, uh, in Kuruman. In Hrabo, in Western Cape, there will be a protest uh, sometime this year, if uh, I'm not aware where it's already taken place. Because what happens, it becomes a vicious cycle where some of the new leaders who takes over these organizations say, but we also want to occupy positions at the municipality. And sometimes when we speak, it seems as if these things are thumbsuck, but we've got credible evidence. I also went to all the municipalities and I asked the, like the Fixburg situation, the so-called Tatani case, where the communities told me that, and one community member told me that, a hungry stomach does not know any loyalty. Yes, I got a job. Some of my co-leaders got tenders uh, and we were asked to leave, uh, you know, stop the protest. Now, once you, you deal with protests in that way, you are only dealing, uh, you're not dealing with the fundamental uh, 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 issues of, of the protest. And that's why we see a vicious cycle of protest in some of these areas. Now, very briefly, program director, I've got six uh, key lessons that I think I want to limit myself to. The first one is institutions and representation. The, the second one is the blurred lines between political parties and social movement activists. The second, the third one, I've already spoken about it, the whole notion of uh, perverse incentives. But one should also look at the structures. That is a second last one, the fourth one. Uh, the structures of these civic groups uh, as a huge implications for community protests. And I want to end off with the role of uh, the media. Now to start off, Whenever you've got institutions uh, uh, and representation, then whether formal or informal, that is unavoidable. A representational, institutional representation, that is unavoidable. And whether it is formal or informal, where there is representation, we all know that power relations are involved. And this in itself has some constraint uh, for many. However, if you, you look at what many of the scholars who work on uh, social movements have stated, and I'm kind of persuaded by the ad argument of those who argue that, and I'm gonna quote, where institutions are strong, actors are likely 
to participate in the political process through institutionalized arenas. And where they are weak, protest and other unconventional means of participation become more appealing. However, I've got a completely different view uh, because we have seen there are several instances where activists have challenged institutions of power that are uh, perceived to be responsible for their daily suffering. Uh, and it's almost like a double-edged sword where the more institutions like municipalities and even state actors are trying to resolve the problem, the more brazen, it doesn't happen in all the cases, the more brazen some of these activists are becoming. Irrespective of how well uh, engagement is taking place, irrespective of how well uh, the state actors are trying to deal with the problem, you just do get these radical elements who are not persuaded by any any form of intervention from uh, the state actors. The second part, which I uh, item key lesson that I also want to highlight, uh, uh, I've been told I've got five minutes, is the blurred lines between uh, uh, the party affiliation and social movement, where you find that in South Africa, protesters may protest, and we all know that we've got a, the ANC-led government, where you find today uh, South Africans will vote for the African National Congress, and then the next day they will embark on protests against the very same uh, government. And one reason for that is that what is telling about this, uh, uh, the strength is that it is not only about community grievances, but it is also where individual activists are striving to get recognition and legitimacy. That is very crucial that irrespective of whether a, an activist group have decided not to use violence, you will find that there are some elements within the group that will actually encourage people to engage with that. I've spoken about uh, perverse incentives or transactional activism. And then the second last one, very important, uh, the structure of these groupings. We know that at a university, we've got a very highly formalized structure. You've got an, an SRC, which represents the students. But if you look at community protests in South Africa, we've got a situation where most of these civic groupings are actually uh, very flexible, sporadic, and are prone to violence. Uh, but in terms of your ratepayer associations, which are highly structured, they do have meetings where it is on a monthly basis. That's where you will find that, as I've indicated, the tactic that they use, it is a tactic of engaging. And it's only at a stage where they can't reach any agreement with a municipality that they will decide to take uh, the legal route in that regard. So the structure of these organizations are also very important. And then lastly also, Prof, you spoke about uh, sociologist, uh, Professor Carl von Holt, 
he wrote a book that says the smoke uh, uh, titled The Smoke That Calls. Now in South Africa, what we have also seen in terms of community protest is that it seems as if the government only respond uh, when there is violence. And that is a serious problem. But also we need to look at the role of the media, which gravitate towards cultivating an idea that protests are violent. And there are many, many peaceful protests that are taking place in South Africa, but which will not reach uh, over, uh, you know, flighted in the media because uh, it is not something which is appealing. Uh, program director, if you allow me, uh, I just want to close off by uh, putting on my sociological lens and borrow from the classic work of sociology, C. Wright, uh, The Power of the Elite and State. By the time a student reaches uh, the university, it is almost impossible to unlearn the social norms. Uh, that he or she has been accustomed to. And thus, if we call for a paradigm shift in student protest, we need to have the courage to tackle the many challenges and shortcomings related to behavioral and relational uh, dimensions of our students. Thank you, Chair. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Matevesi. Um, please keep your questions and your comments. You'll have your opportunity. Um, we're now moving to the next one, Professor Nyashamboti, an apartheid studies perspective on student protests at the UFS and some proposals about how to resolve them. I can't wait to hear about the proposals, Prof. Thank you very much, Gray. Um, I know I'm not the vice chancellor and I don't want to be presumptuous, uh, but I'm going to ask for five more minutes uh, to be added to my 15 minutes. Um, but uh, it's okay if you deny me the privilege. Uh, so, thank you, Josh. So, um, my presentation today um, is drawn from my work in apartheid studies. Um, and apartheid studies is a new field of study from the global south, uh, which I pioneered uh, after the Lone Min Massacre. So I don't call it the Marikana Massacre, I call it the Lone Min Massacre because it's important to locate capital at the heart of it, not just the geography. Um, so apartheid studies is uh, a field of study that uses the notion of apartheid as a theoretical framework to address the issue of the persistence of oppression. Why does oppression persist? Why does inequality persist? Why does poverty persist? Why does injustice persist? And the apartheid studies framework has, for the first time, systematically defined apartheid 
because we need to remember that apartheid has never been systematically defined. The term itself came from the Dutch Reformed Church and from the broader point. It's not a name that we gave it. So apartheid studies for the first time systematically defines apartheid as the rate of oppression. In other words, we're saying that apartheid is the highest stage of oppression. What do we mean by this? We're simply talking about a situation where for oppression to persist, something must happen to the nature of the oppression. Apartheid must withdraw from what we call publicness. And it must become an individual level phenomenon. And this is what happened in 1994, for instance. Uh, if you look at the vocabulary of the ANC, from the Morogoro Conference uh, to the speeches of Oliver Tambo in the late 70s to the late 80s, they're all very consistent that apartheid cannot be reformed. It must be uprooted. But if you check their vocabulary by the early to mid 90s, now it was the vocabulary of negotiating with the thing they wanted to uproot. And the only way you can move from wanting to uproot something to wanting to negotiate with is if you can withdraw that form of oppression from its public nature so that it becomes individual level. Um, when oppression becomes individual level, it basically disappears. It becomes undetectable and invisible, not because it is not there, but simply because it has become part of household expenditure, it has become part of our social norms and behaviors and so on and so forth. Um, and in my work, I argue that oppression basically goes on sabbatical, goes on holiday, because we are invoiced the costs of that oppression. We start to participate in our own oppression, so you don't need the oppressor's presence anymore. This is why, for instance, 10% can oppress 90%. It doesn't make sense numerically. Why would 10% oppress 90% if they, are, they can't be there? Logistically, it doesn't make sense. The only reason 10% can oppress 90% is because the 90% themselves become participants in that process. And the oppressor can go on holiday. They can have breakfast in bed, but oppression continue. So I'd like to draw from my party studies approach, a model that uh, I call the accountability model. And the accountability model has 10 constructs. And I'd like to speak to those 10 constructs. The first construct in the accountability model is diagnosis. That's the first construct, that's the first proposition. The second construct is one that I call responsibility. The third construct or proposition is one that I call intervention. The fourth construct is called positive non-intervention. Positive non-intervention. The fifth construct is called positive intervention. 
Uh, the sixth construct is called negative non-intervention. Construct number seven is called level one responsibility. Construct number eight is called level two responsibility. Uh, construct number eight, uh, sorry, number nine um, is called population level diagnosis. And the final construct is individual level diagnosis. So I'd like to speak to this quickly so that we can understand how this links with the rate of operation and how this links with how we can try to understand persistent operation and student protests. So I'm going to cast this in the form of a scenario so that we can understand these con co constructs at play. Let's say you go to a doctor for an examination. And I'm using this deliberately because I know most of us, babes, all of us have been to the doctor at some point. So you go to a doctor for the, for the examination. And after the examination, the doctor says, um, Dr. Gray, I give you a clean bill of health. Professor Joy, I give you a clean bill of health. And you say, thank you, doctor. What are you thanking the doctor for? You're thanking the doctor for the diagnosis, for the diagnosis. You're not thanking the doctor for the health. You're not thanking the doctor for the clean bill of health. The doctor is not, is not the one who made you healthy. They diagnosed you. They said you're healthy. So diagnosis is what you're thanking them for. The clean bill of health is your business. It's your responsibility. Is at your discretion, is at your own risk. So the, so the first construct diagnosis has been done. The second construct is your responsibility, health. Did you know that the doctor did not make you healthy? So responsibility. When the doctor says you're healthy, immediately you enter a new domain which I call positive non-intervention. You don't need to do anything. You've got a clean bill of health. Unless the doctor is unethical, there's no way they are going to prescribe meds for you. There's no way they are going to prescribe any intervention for you. So positive non-intervention is where you don't need to do anything because the UFS is fine. We don't have problems here. So we move on with our lives. Life goes on. So we now move to that third construct, positive non-intervention. But there's another construct, which is a fourth construct, which I call positive intervention. And positive intervention is where the doctor says, uh, ma'am or doctor or prof, we have a problem here. You have liver cirrhosis or you've got TB or you've got six months to live. Or I've got a problem, whatever problem it is. Once the doctor diagnoses a problem, you immediately enter the domain of positive intervention because something has to be done. And in this particular case, the doctor, you can say to the doctor, okay, so what should I do? Or they can say, I'm going to prescribe this, or we want to do surgery on you. That is positive intervention diagnosis. If there's a problem, you move on to positive intervention. 
Then there's another construct which just mentioned, which is negative non-intervention. This is where the doctor says, we have a problem here, you are sick, you are very sick. But then, I don't have the money for hospital bills, or I just don't care. You have said I have six months to leave. I'm just going to go back home and I'll still continue to drink or continue to smoke until I die. I don't want any intervention. I don't want anything to happen or I don't care about what you've told me or I can't afford it. And we have many situations where people want something to happen and it just doesn't happen. So you go back home. Yes, you got the diagnosis, but there is no intervention. So negative non-intervention is where you intervene by actually not doing anything, not because everything is fine, but because either you don't care or systemically you can't. What that does is in, at the level of responsibility, the person who goes back home because they can't afford the hospital bill or because they don't care or whatever, they take back all their responsibility the responsibility over what happens to them, over their own health, over their own body. The doctor is not responsible if we can't talk about uh, positive intervention. So the doctor also steps away. It's your responsibility because we can't intervene. So we've now spoken about those five constructs. Uh, the sixth construct that happens, um, that, that I called uh, level one, uh, responsibility is that which you saw the first moment uh, the doctor diagnoses you and says you are very healthy. It means we thank you for, for your healthy behaviors. But uh, okay, five minutes, thank you. So with, with, with that particular level of responsibility, which I call level one responsibility, it's, it's, it's your personal responsibility in terms of what happens uh, within the accountability model. Level two responsibility is for the institution, which I call population level responsibility or institutional responsibility. You shouldn't mix them up, right? For instance, the university cannot tell students how to live their lives. The university cannot micromanage the lives of its staff. That is level one responsibility. That is my health. Level two responsibility is what I call uh, shared responsibility. This is where positive intervention happens. This is a level of intervention. Level two responsibility. And then population level diagnostics is where the institution or the individual can do diagnosis uh, in the whole society uh, or where. Uh, Diagnosis can be done at the individual level. How does this link with protests, for instance? The, ide the, the, the idea here is that when you do not have a rigorous understanding of responsibility, uh, of interventions, and of diagnosis, the university takes decisions or students take decisions, allocating resources, allocating attention on bases that are completely at odds and that are arbitrary. So you can allocate 3,000 laptops to 30,000 students as happened in 2020. Uh, or you can have the current social media policy 
that tries, that is being tried, that tries to micromanage how students and staff, for instance, use social media. There is a failure to understand level one responsibility and the difference between level one responsibility and level two responsibility. There is a uh, difficulty in understanding intervention, positive intervention, negative non-intervention, uh, and positive non-intervention. So I will end here and, and would like to, uh, in future, uh, speak broadly about these questions. Uh, hopefully when you uh, have a question and answer at the end, uh, I can take some questions on this, but hopefully we can start to have a broader dialogue on uh, uh, this particular perspective that I call the accountability model and what you can do about it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, there will be time for question and answer. Yes. All right, we, we need to continue. And thank you for uh, uh, the comments. Um, the absence of students does not necessarily mean we are not acknowledging their intellectual capacity. It was um, it was um, our our effort to really make sure that we we try and engage this. This is the first in a series. There will be many more. Um, Prof. Joy, please must four. Let's, let's see, it seems like the room is already a little bit otherwise, ne? <laughs> yeah. uh, okay. So, um, you know, I'm the head of anthropology, right? And if you've done anthropology, then you understand that we speak about the nature of being human in relationship or in relation to other human beings, right? And when I was asked... <laughs> Thank you for the invitation, by the way. When I was asked to present, I was going through quite a lot, eh? Like, you, we actually work. <laughs> and I said yes without thinking. <laughs> and now I find myself here and I go, oh, I need to tell them I haven't presented like this about this particularly. I've taught about everything, even power and wealth political economy, local political economy, et cetera, et cetera. But not specifically about student protests. And so when I thought about it this weekend, I thought, what is it that I can bring to this space, which is different, which you haven't heard? So you're asking for the student voice. And I think on many levels, you have heard the student voice, right? No. No, you you still feel you haven't. So when you're rubbing shoulders with your comrades, when you're having meetings at night, when you're having discussions, you still haven't heard each other. Right, right. And what are those material conditions? Right. So you are saying that we sit with. Hi, man. Give me other words. <laughs> give me, give me other words. Let's let's not start debating. So fundamentally, what we're talking about is exclusion. 
on some very basic level, some very basic level, I'm not going to say US students because I don't like doing that. Né? On some very basic level, we feel excluded. However that exclusion looks, but it's often a relation, a direct relation to class. We know the history of this country. We know that racial capitalism existed and continues to exist. And that as a result of it, it means that some people, very few have while others, some have while others don't, right? Now in this conversation, often what is ignored is people like myself who teach students, who had to witness violence against students, who had to witness violence against somebody that she holds very dear. And because anthropologists tell stories, <laughs> that's our job. I thought I will tell you a story about me and Lulu. Okay. Before my arrival at the UFS in 2018, I worked at Rhodes University. And at the time, I was the head of the department as well as the deputy dean of humanities. And in that particular period, I was teaching on power and wealth. And this one particular student was very vocal. Father, MK, nurse, mother, teacher, small little plot in the Eastern Cape, cattle farming, okay, but small, yeah, small nana. And she was very vocal that first day when I asked, so who's oppressed? Because if you're sitting in the benches of Rhodes University, one of the best institutions, can you really say you were oppressed? Oh, you can imagine the fire. Because she was a student leader. She was part of BLM. She was sitting, having conversations, but she had a way of engaging not only with her fellows, but also people in Management, because you know we do that, né? management, students, workers, as if we are not all human beings. So we follow that line, those lines of communication. There's always lines of communication. If you're a student, you do ABC. If you're a worker, you do ABC. If you're management, you do ABC. We forget that we know how to communicate. We know how to listen. We know how to talk from the heart. By week two, she was out of that class and she, <laughs> she was protesting in a very nice way. Né? She went into one of the um, more elaborate spaces at Rhodes University and together with other student leaders, they camped. You know, the sitting, né? two days, three days, four days, five days. Six days, they were cooking, they were sleeping, they were using the toilet on and off the VC would visit because his office was around the corner. What's happening? What are we talking about? Words decolonization. Words we can't afford to be here. Words you are not listening. You're not engaging. You don't understand our plight. Yeah. 
two weeks in, I find herself, I find her sitting in front of my office door at half past seven in the morning. And I say, hey man, <laughs> why are you not attending class? Hey, don't you know, there's a protest happening. Oh, and so you can't make it to class. 50 minutes of your day. I, I, I man, you need to understand, hey, my comrades need me. So I will be there. But you look tired. Yeah, because we're singing. <laughs> we're singing. We have to keep each other going. By this time, I don't really know Lulu. But when uh, in the next two weeks, three weeks, it becomes apparent that we are now pushing towards fees increasing by 6%, students say, so we know that story, yeah? And so it goes across all campuses, right? Classes are disrupted. Students are angry. It's no longer this is the student voice. There are students saying, I'm a NASFAS. I would love to participate in that protest, but I cannot. Why? Back home, they rely on me to get this degree. If I run the risk of not getting this degree, I don't get a job. I don't get my family out of poverty. Another student of mine, I look at him, I say, oh, Molly, why are you standing on the edges here? Hey, oh, I, I, want, I want to go, but I can't. I'm responsible for my siblings. And I'm responsible for other students who are also here that I'm helping. What do you mean you're responsible? Yeah, I'm using my NASFAS money. So we walk down the road. A student standing, sitting in front of drama department. They are tired. Colleagues have gotten involved. They're cooking. They're making food. They're getting five liters of water. They're bringing them. What do I see? Humanity in action. Not staff as students. By the end of that week, we are told <laughs> no fee increase. And like my students, I burst out into tears because the week has been hard. I've been a part of Crisis Comms, which is a WhatsApp group. And ever so often you hear things are happening on campus. They're threatening that buildings will be burnt. People say that that doesn't violate you, it does because it comes into your private space. You're on campus, half past seven in the morning, you leave six, seven, eight o'clock because you want to make sure your students are okay. People talk about the students, you say they are not the students, they are my students. Barely a year later, I've had Lulu in my house and she's been staying with me for a while. Why? Because the relationships in the movement went south. Because someone who started saying, you know what, instead of working against each other, we need to work together. Because we're all a part of this institution. And we all want to thrive, right? And if we understand that the institution is a microcosm of society, then what happens out there happens in here, 
the experiences you've had out there come with you into this space. And we consistently talk to your mind, but we don't talk to your heart. And so you feel excluded in the seats. You feel like you've been invited to the table, but you are getting the crumbs. You're not eating. So I've gotten to know her and understand her and I love and appreciate her. And then all hell breaks loose on campus. And we go through another period of student protests. And the one day I'm exhausted, I'm sitting in my office and I think it's half past three, the sun is shining, the birds are twittering, nothing's happening, everybody's safe. And who comes into my office? Lulu. Come and look. The police are in the road in front of the building and they are ready to start shooting. So I go with her <laughs> and my office administrator because we believe the relationship we have with our students is important, right? And if they are going to get hurt, we are going to witness it. It's not just going to happen. We're going to witness it. So we go out and there are students that I don't know. And there are students who are weeping and my arms are doing the business. I'm hugging everybody, right? It's okay because I think I can handle this, right? I can, I can hug the hurt away, okay? As if hugging can feed you, <laughs> yeah. But I'm trying because I'm also trying to make sense of what I'm seeing. There are five, six police officers, rifles at the ready. There's a phalanx of students coming down. They're singing. They are doing the dance that we know, which is the toy toy. Ne? And there are other people coming and students coming. Now, I see on crisis comms, some people are saying, we've kept the students at the library, but they are leaving. I say, stay away from this area because we don't know what's going to happen. One of the senior leaders steps out and he sees a colleague and he goes to him and he says, Tell the police they must not shoot. I can speak to my comrades. I can calm them down. Please tell them they mustn't shoot. Lulu grabs him because he's about to go. I grab Lulu and say, you cannot. I'm supposed to protect you, right? The minute you cross the line, I have no control. We're behind the police at this point. If you go in front, that's it. What does she tell me? Let me go. Let me go. I can't let him go alone. Let me go. Barely two minutes later, they start shooting. Canisters. Rubber bullets. I'm at the point where I'm going, oh, I don't understand this anymore. So I stand like this. Ne? Because in that moment, if I believed in God, I would have lost my faith. These are human beings, human beings, and they dispersed and they ran. In the running, she lost her shoes. She lost her phone. She ran into a building they shot into the building when they were not supposed to. 
some of them were grabbed, taken to the police station. Luckily, we hardly ever remember cell phone numbers, eh? but she remembered mine. She used someone else's phone. She called me. Where are you driving, trying to get a hold of her? Finally get her. Please, can you go to the police station? We need to go and sort out. We need to find out. At that point, there are other community organizations also involved. The terror that I felt, the terror that I felt, I cannot forget. And so this part of the dialogue for me is triggering. Hmm? Because the stories of those who witnessed are not necessarily recognized. But I'm here every day doing what I love doing, which is to teach. Why? Why? Because you deserve an education. Um, I think, I think we'll just uh, take a few comments, uh, from the group and thank you, Prof. Joy, for actually telling us the ethnographic account. Why are we here? Uh, okay. This is a question, Prof. Mbodi, please prepare to answer this one when the time comes. How can student leaders individualize the suppression of student activism? and protest in order to make the protest objectives easier to overcome. Uh, with respect, professors are in office during protest. Why are we not in the panel? I think if, if you've heard the ethnographic account of uh, Prof. Uh, Joy, I think that basically answers that question. <laughs> Okay, I think keep that thought. Keep that thought. At at uh, fifteen forty-five, you will be able to express it. Um, Prof. Chasi, you're next. I'm very grateful to be here. I'm humbled to be here. Uh, Prof. Joy, um, I think you spoke with courage. I think you spoke with more courage than I would have. I think that um, it's important. Um, I'm, in a I'm in a difficult moment, so you'll, you'll have to help me a little bit as well. I'd like to remind us of a well-written account. I think that all of us deserve to read that account. Um, professor from Cape Town who died of suicide. Uh, I'm forgetting his name momentarily because of the moment. From it, prof professor Bongani Mayosi. You should read the, the report on him that was written. You should read about how this man, one of our greatest, best representations of black scholarly excellence, who rose to become this dean, 
how when students protested, they failed to recognize how deeply he felt for their cause because he recognized himself in them. The students didn't see this. How in so many different ways, the institution itself also failed to recognize what he was trying to do. And of course, this becomes part of the story of how this man succumbed in the end to suicide. So I think that you speak with and from a perspective of great authority and great power, a perspective that reminds us, of course, that we are human. And I, I think it's important uh, when we have this moment where we think about what it means for us to be human, for us to recognize the many, many ways in which we share difficult histories. Now, let's look among us. Who among us has histories that you can really imagine, that you can really associate with, right? Who among us came from homes where finding food was difficult, right? Who amongst you as students, who amongst us as academics, who amongst us has sons, daughters, children, who are you, cousins, friends, I think that these are difficult conversations that we really must have. I, I, I didn't mean to go there, but I will go there. I will go to interviews that I was conducting to do with protests at the university, protection services staff, colleagues talking about how they have children. So when they confront you at a protest, police, they have children, they have cousins. So we're in difficult places. We're in difficult places, and let's maybe for a moment think about what it means for us to be human. I'd intended to speak about Ubuntu, Ubuntu in the context of protests, Ubuntu in the context of recognizing the many, many real issues that we have. There's a multitude of them. We can talk about Nefsa's issues. I have a whole long list of these issues, but you know them better than I know them, right? We all know them. We feel them in our skins. We feel them in our stomachs. But we also should talk about how one of the terrible fruits of apartheid is that distancing, that separation. We have an incredible ability in this country to be apathetic, to separate ourselves, to set ourselves apart. Person like they can't possibly be a person, like they can't possibly know my pain. But Professor Mayosi knew his students' pain. He was doing everything in his capacity to do whatever he could to assist them. But of course, we live in contexts where one of the terrible fruits of apartheid is that we feel we cannot be heard and we live lives of not being heard. We live lives of experiencing ourselves in these institutions as people who do not belong. Now, what does this question to do with belonging? And perhaps we should go to it a little bit. Again, I'd not planned to go there, right? But let's picture the university as this great tree for a moment. 
this great tree that has great roots that go into the ground and branches that look to the sky and perhaps that bears fruit. Let us perhaps think about how this tree grows in our soil, gets its nutrients from our soil, from who we are as people. You see, this tree is not an alien tree. Whatever this tree, the University of the Free State has achieved and will achieve, is drawn from the energies, the commitments, the drives, the sacrifices of all our people. Therefore, I think that when we talk about belonging, we belong in this tree. We deserve the fruits of this tree. They are of us, right? So if colonialism took root in Africa, in African education and African higher education, I think we should say that it was grafted onto the trees of our cultures, onto the branches of our cultures. Indeed, when we latch onto this tree of knowledge, we are not latching onto something that is alien that we do not belong to. We must do away with this idea, this alien and strange idea that somehow we do not belong. Indeed, you belong. The question is, do you have the courage, do you have the willingness to accept that you belong? This is important in the context of us saying, are we heard? Can you be heard if you do not speak? Can you be engaged with if you refuse to engage? Can you engage if you fundamentally believe, no matter what someone else tells you, that they are not listening to you? Go and read Professor Mayosi. Right? Go and experience how so many try to listen. Now, this is important, this business of communicating and talking, as we realize how, given the histories, the legacies of apartheid, the common conceptual grounds upon which you and I should build an understanding. You and I should find words that we share a common understanding of on the basis of which we can decide how to cooperate. If we understand that and we understand that apartheid has worked to sever these connections between us, and this becomes a terrible legacy that prevents you and I from building these great institutions. This is a cancer at the heart of our nation, at the heart of our Africa, at African uh, day celebrations recently, we are really good at cutting each other apart, right? You're a woman, stay over there. You're different from me, stay over there. You're an academic, stay over there. You can't possibly know what I feel. I'm an African child, right? Why don't we for a moment reconsider? Why don't we for a moment 
re-embrace the great fruits of Ubuntu, the great capability that Ubuntu tells us we have to be persons, persons together with other persons, other persons who are called Mayosi, who are called Joy Owen, who have many different names. Why don't we, within that context, find ways to cry? The child that does not cry dies on its mother's back. I wish to also read that if there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet deprecate agitation are men, I'll say also women, who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of the many rivers. This was Frederick Douglass who rose up from slavery and could write with such wonderful eloquence. Became a teacher, an educator. We never forgot where he came from. Now I'm recalling Frederick Douglass, I'm recalling this idea of the mighty importance that we should cry. We should cry in the understanding that we will be heard because those who put us on their backs want to hear us. We cry when we protest. Do we believe when we protest that we are heard? Do we believe when we protest that we should use our words to explain what it is that hurts us? Do we believe when we protest that we should engage? That we should find a way to allow for dialogue, discussion, engagement to take place? Do we believe that without such processes, we are unable to confront the wicked problems of our times. Ladies and gentlemen, let's not quibble about this point. The legacy of apartheid, of colonialism, is of these wicked problems. They are called wicked because each solution that you have appears to come with great costs elsewhere that are totally unacceptable. Right? The limited amount of money that we have, if we spend it on X, we cannot do Y. This is the reality of where we are. The only way that we as Africans get out of the difficult situations that we are in is if we accept that our Ubuntu, our being people, people who belong at the table where we can discuss, where we can share ideas, where with our ideas, with our common and shared intelligence, we can come up with creative new solutions that will overcome those problems. If we do not have the courage to invest in those processes, we are doomed. But if we have the courage to invest in these possibilities, to communicate in ways that enable creative solutions, we have hope.
Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Prof. Colin. I think we can uh, proceed with comments. Proceed. You know, they say um, once a president, always a president, isn't it? <laughs> so, Mr. President, um, I, was, I will will ask or request Mr. Miyama to cut his presentation short. They will share the 15 minutes. So, where is the president? Oh, no, oh, you know, always a pleasure, always a pleasure, President. Uh, good afternoon, colleagues, uh, both our audience that is joining us virtually and those that are in the room. Uh, Chair, as proposals are coming in, I'm looking at the numbers. This is quite impressive. Uh, normally in a virtual sitting, numbers go down as the hours proceed, but the numbers are increasing. So I'm not one to be in between uh, this wonderful panel and engagements. I'll be short and precise, colleagues. Uh, one, firstly, let me uh, forward my appreciation to the Department of Humanities for giving me this opportunity. Uh, colleagues, this was, I want to make an announcement that we are going to have a student equivalent of this engagement. Uh, as it was stated by the chair, it will be hosted by Student Governance uh, VC. As it was stated by the chair, that <clears throat> this one was initially meant to be for particularly to get a perspective of academics. Then we'll have a perspective of students and then we'll find a way to amalgamate where all of us can be in the same room, in the same panel, and we deliberate on the same issues. So that opportunity is going to come. It's coming in the second semester. So keep those notes that you'll be making today, colleagues. We're definitely looking forward to the same enthusiasm when you go into that second part. Uh, colleagues, I want to state, okay, the nice thing about being the seventh, the, uh, the seventh speaker, the seventh speaker when there are six professors that came before you, is that really I don't have to say a lot because a lot has been said. Uh, one, what, what became evident is that the common thread in terms of what, what has been discussed is that protests are necessary. Protests, in essence, colleagues, are not something to be frowned upon. Protests, when executed well, Chair, we are where we are today. We have the gains that we have today. Um, black students have access to this institution today, primarily because of the gains of protest. Now, where do we draw the line is, 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 is where it gets a bit tricky. I titled my presentation, of course, I won't go into most of it because of the request that, it, that has been put forth. The Balancing Act, rights versus, uh, versus responsibilities, amidst the tension of protest action. <laughs> now, colleagues, one uh, is that if, uh, one, of, one of the common threads that one can take from the speakers that came before me is that protests do not emanate from a vacuum. In fact, based on what has already been presented, one can safely say that more often than not, protest is an action is a reaction and a manifestation of grievances that have, that have not been addressed, both in the community and even institutions of higher learning. 
With that being said, we are to acknowledge that to, uh, to protest, in a sense, is not a bad thing. In fact, it is a democratic right enshrined in our constitution. This is the result uh, of the appreciation that transformation is seldom a voluntary process. When you consider the language policy, the process that we have to go through, the removal of statues, anything else in society, colleagues, transformation is hardly ever a, oh, by all means, let's go, yippee, let's transform. There often needs to be something to the system that sort of is a catalyst to that process. Now, I want to refer to some of the literature. I, most of it I will leave out. But Section 17 of the South African Constitution recognizes the right in the following terms. Everyone has the right, peacefully and unarmed, to assemble, to demonstrate, uh, to picket, and to present petitions. Now, colleagues, I will be honest and frank. I work with students who are honest and frank, and so I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll take the same approach. The reality of it is that in every protest uh, situation, particularly now of late, there's often, a, 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 at times, a criminal component to it. Now, those that, I'll, 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 allow me to unpack it. Now, those that take charge, uh, I'll quote Spider-Man. <laughs> now, Spider-Man says with great power, uh, comes great responsibility. Those that take charge of protests often have to bear the responsibility of making sure that these fine lines are not crossed. So uh, as it stands, President, I will use an example. I'll use a lot of examples so that I exclude some of the literature. An example would be that very recently on the Kwakwa campus, we saw our campus clinic uh, burn up in flames. Now we do not have a petrol station on campus. There is no easy access to, uh, to petrol. Someone with a sober mind decided that I'm going to purchase petrol and I'm going to target the media lab. And after that, I'm going to target the campus clinic. Now, this is an essential service that's provided to, to students. Now, in the process, when we are discussing protest, when we're discussing protests, we must be honest with ourselves that, yes, uh, you've got the right to, to protest. It's very important that we protest. And there are very ways to, uh, there, there are uh, various ways to go about it. And in fact, I've got student leaders in this room and those who are joining virtually, whom I've seen address uh, a mess that would be perceived as angry. And they were uh, able to deliberate with them until the crowd disperses. And that's what we want to see. I'm not saying by all means, all crowds must be dispersed. Otherwise we won't get any change. But how we go about things is very important. And the distinction during uh, a protest pro during protest action itself is very important to be able to identify that such an act is criminal, such an act is unethical. Again, colleagues, if if we, uh, if we allow then this component to exist within a protest, and then there's an umbrella approach that uh, because the action took place uh, and we are all together as comrades, then we add to the stigma and the misconception that protest is synonymous with violence. And in essence, I think the speakers that came before me gave uh, simple ex uh, explanations of the kinds of protests that were taking place. And even ones that uh, Prof. Peterson in fact touched on it uh, <clears throat> extensively, the different types of protests that take place in the space. So the space must be allowing for protests to take place. It's very, uh, it's very important. Now, Let's speak to the collateral aspect. Um, two minutes. Let's speak to the collateral uh, aspect of protest, colleagues. Uh, it sounds very revolutionary to say that a, a, a revolution without casualties is not a revolution, a, a revolution at all. 
colleagues, we had a scenario. I'm going to use another scenario where many years back on the Quaqua campus again, I've worked on all three campuses, a short space in Bloom, now based on the South, but most of my years in Quaqua, where Funza Lushaka students, before Nesfas was the blessed that it is today, uh, Funza Lushaka was the grim de la grim. You, you got change like nobody's business. Now these students had been waiting for their change for a long while. And of course there was a delay, whether on the, uh, on the part of Funza Lushaka itself or uh, the university, but there was a definite delay in them getting there. This is after tuition, uh, food resi residence has been covered. Change is what you get back. Now, because of the delay, they take to the gates, they shut down the campus. They say no activities are going to proceed uh, because we want our change. Now, when that happens, operations come to a halt. But there made a group of students, I think it was sociology actually, Dr. Gray. <laughs> I think it was sociology. There was a, a module that had a large number of students were writing on the day. They got to the gate and they said, you cannot come here and disturb our processes because of your privilege. Funza Lushaka does not accept us. It does not give us change. We as NESFA students do not get the amount of money you're exposed to. Now you cannot come before us and obstruct us from accessing education as a result of the privilege. Now, this is how this played out. Now we have co a conflict and a confrontation between one group of students and the other. But of course, the students that were writing largely outnumbered those that were uh, that were, were protesting for Funza Lushak. So it was easy to overpower, the system proceeded. But the principle is the same colleagues, even if you are in majority, the right to protest remains exactly that, the right to protest. You have a responsibility, you have a moral responsibility, an ethical responsibility uh, to, to take action in the, uh, when faced with injustice, but you must not infringe on the rights of others. And this, we must emphasize because that is where the dilemma is in terms of the balance. Where do we draw? Again, we, we encourage students to, uh, to, to be active, active in the church, active in business, active when it comes to uh, matters of gender-based violence, active in all, in all spaces and all spheres of life. But in that activism, colleagues, there must be uh, an ethical aspect that guides our actions. And that is the question of the balance and where do we draw the line? Last chair, if I don't come to this part, yes. Last chair, when I spoke about stakeholders, everyone naturally assumed that I'm just talking about the rights and responsibilities of students, but the university as well, as a stakeholder has got, has got its own rights, but it also has responsibilities. And one of the primary responsibilities of institutions of higher learning is that it is uh, also have the right and uh, the primary responsibility is to provide quality education to students and creative uh, and create conditions that are conducive for teaching and learning. And we must acknowledge that our systems are flawed. Even the VC in his presentation stated, you know uh, what happened this year, the domino effect, there was a delay from National Treasury to give money to NESFAS. Therefore, there was a, a delay from NESFAS to give money to institutions. And then ultimately at grassroots level, those who suffer are the students. So the system is far from ideal. So the, it is important that students be engaged, be exposed to everything that happens in the space. And when the time comes to take action, they should be willing and unapologetic about it. But we must, every time as we engage, we must understand where we draw the line, colleagues. And that's where we speak about ethical leadership. But for now, let me skip that part. And the, uh, as I was, I was going to conclude by saying protests, uh, uh, <clears throat> for all that happens, all stakeholders must be humanizing in their approach, both the institution and the students themselves. Uh, the, uh, 
the protesters have, have a responsibility, the protesters have a responsibility to be humanizing towards their counterparts who choose not to engage in the act of protest. The university has got a responsibility to be humanizing in how they approach those who protest because ultimately, protests do not emanate from a vacuum. I would even argue that uh, protests emanate from a place of pain. Thank you very much. President, five minutes. All right. Um, thank you very much, um, Program Director. A very good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, VC. Um, to all the speakers that graced us, thank you very much for the very insightful presentation. And apologies, management. Can please this not reflect when we go back <laughs> to the department? Um, <laughs> um, but uh, equally so, I think that firstly, I would just love to thank the humanities. Thank you very much, um, Prof, under your leadership for having such um, engagements. Um, I saw that and SK is here and he always speaks about a festival of ideas every time we have specifically students come and engage about such critical matters. And I think that as a student leader myself, over the past years, analyzing the space um, and how activism has been um, driven within the University of the Free State, we can all attest that um, the memorandums that President Jerry wrote are not very different from the memorandums that President SK wrote during his time because the very same problems keep on repeating the, um, itself each and every single time. So we keep on asking ourselves as to when these protests happen, what are we supposed to do? When these protests happen, how are we supposed to act? He, who's responsible for what? But the major thing that I've always spoken about is actually where do these problems emanate? Why does each and every single year we have the very same NSFAS problem, but it is faced in a different context? And I think I also mentioned that um, during one of the Senate meetings to Prof, whereby we were just saying that we see that now currently we are having students that are over-enrolled. We are seeing that currently we are having these major problems. But during the past um, terms, wasn't this problem there? How are we proactive in solving the problems that next time when we come and say we want to protest, we protest something that is going to push the transformation agenda of activism and the university at large. And in that manner, I think that um, simply put, when we remove NSFAS, and finance problems, there'll be nothing to protest about. And now also that on its own questions, the activism within the University of the Free State. Are we moving to a specific direction as student leaders? Because it is our responsibility as students to keep on raising our frustrations, of course, and raising what we stand for in a respectful manner as we do this protest. But also a question that I would love to probe to the student community at large in uh, regards to this is how best are we trying to push the transformation agenda of student activism within the University of the Free State? It is very much crucial that we also take time to reflect that um, it's been almost 10 years, if not, since fees must fall. The activism then and the activism today, two different things. And the question is why? It also now comes to a point that there are many barriers that are now currently put. The system that we are operating in currently has more barriers than back then. We enter into a space now that there are policies that are now put in place that are 
directing as to how our activism should be driven within institutions of higher learning. Now we need to enter into what we call once again engagements with the university to say that these policies that we are putting in place within the university, are they really promoting student activism or they are just there to protect the university alone. It goes back once again to what Mr. Moema just said, that there are responsibilities between both the university and the students. But now when the university is acting upon their own responsibility, at time it hinders our own responsibility as a student community. So now I think in closing, I think it is very much important that within the University of the Free State, we continue driving the aspect of a student-centered university, not only within the policies, not only within the statute, but also in practicality. Um, having more engagements within the student community as to how do we try to manage these situations without suppressing the other individual in this case, which is the student community. Because one thing that I believe is very important is that student activism is literally what is making us sit all here. And I think that we can all attest that if there was no one that, as Ms. Mema said, striked in 2016, none of us would be sitting here. So that is still very much so needed within the space and should be highly endorsed in a very respectful manner within the inclusion of students in each and every single decision that is taken. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, thank you, President. President SK, you are recognized. President Jerry, you are recognized. Um, we're now opening it up for questions. There, there are also a couple of other presidents online. They're also recognized as well. Right. Um, I'm going to put it in that order. Ne? It will be in that order. Yes, please. I'm going to give you a mic. One, two, one, two. Yep. Whenever I've been at meetings like these, I've always seen the men raise their hands. Ne? And it was intriguing for me to be the one woman on the panel. So I'm going to ask, can we actually have two hands from women first? And yes, take, please. And take their questions I, I endorse first. that. So it's, so it's a bit of a provocation and, and, there. And if there are any hands online as well from, from uh, any uh, of the females online? Women. Women. So in the absence, so it's one, one, two, three, four, Five. Five. In that order. Let me give you a mic. We need to hear you, Chief. Thank you very much, Chair. Uh, I think the one common thing that most of the speakers have alluded to is that protests often turn very wrong. And Mr. Moema uh, added to that, especially with what happened at Kwakwa. But first, before we can blame the, 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 how protests go, the university itself, especially top management, must acknowledge their part in that. On this campus, on all UFS campuses, 
activism has been criminalized. As it is, there's an interdict against the SRC, against student leaders from all organizations that actually stand up for students' rights. So now that takes away the, the ability of student activists to organize students to say, this is how we must protest. This is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't do. So now we cannot then blame the very people who are criminalized on how uh, protests end up. If uh, you saw my, my, my response to Prof. Peterson's article about protesting against protests, was that this is actually what would happen. And unfortunately, on the day that I released that same article, Twatwa campus was spending. So we really must, we really must start to look at the ripple effect of criminalizing activism. And, and, and uh, we must start to look as well as the effect that these protests have on students and leaders. Because one day uh, I was going to the bridge to buy a quarter. I woke up in prison. I don't know what, <laughs> and it's a problem. It cannot keep going on. I want to, okay. Thank you very much, uh, the, uh, program director for the opportunity. Uh, what I'm going to say, it's, uh, it's, not, it's not much of a question, but it's, it's, it's a recommendation to, to, well, of course, to the academia or the panel that has uh, made the presentations that they've made uh, quite insightful thoughts uh, about protest, particularly to the University of the Free State. What I've discovered is that um, uh, uh, the university always, it, it is always looking for individuals who are going to account. Uh, at the end of the day. And uh, the reason why they, they possibly allow, they would allow disrupt, disruptive protest, it's because they know very well that uh, whatever uh, uh, that has happened in South Africa, where we are today, even as NSFAS beneficiaries are as a result of uh, disruptive protest, they know that if they are going to say uh, students must protest peacefully, they don't have any a, a idea as to how students should go about protesting peacefully. Because the, immediately when you're saying you're protesting, you are going to infringe with someone's right, whether you like it or you don't. It happens automatically, you know. Because I've, I've been into, uh, into the space where I, I had to protest. But I took the role of to say, because I understand what, uh, what uh, should not happen at a later stage or what should would possibly be a risk uh, I had to ensure that these protests that I'm engaging in are not going to an extent whereby they, 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 they turn out to be what has been happening at, at, at Kolka campus. So what do you do as a student leader? You must not disassociate yourself from the students. That is the first problem that happens because if you as a person who has been voted into office tend to be away from those individuals, you are giving a space for people who are going to overcome the process, you see. So it is your responsibility as a student leader. So my recommendation is that you cannot be in a protest and never infringe with someone's right. That cannot happen. Another thing our constitution is saying, go protest, but it doesn't articulate as to how do you go about doing that. So can you please look into reviewing uh, perhaps those clauses within the constitution that even if policies of the institution to say, if we are allowing for protest, this is what you must have, this is what must happen. This, was, this is what must not happen, you see. Because at the end of the day, you say, I have the right to protest. You go and close the gate. And then what happens is that the university calls security companies, 
the security company come in and provoke your students, it turns out to be something else, you see. So uh, that... <laughs> No, Chair. I do not agree on that. Um, let, let, let me first make a comment. Um, greetings to Prof. Peterson, to the panelists. Uh, I hope this is a safe space. We don't want to wake up tomorrow and get to registered. <laughs> <laughs> the university is much capable of that. My, my issue, um, firstly, is maybe it, it shows what is happening now that the university is, is really failing to come in terms with students. And whenever there are protests on campus, you are very provocative towards students. And I would say that one, you have student affairs that is dismally failing in terms of mitigation between students, you know, before the rectorate, student affairs should be in a position to engage with students. They are practitioners and they are trained to do that, but they are dismally failing. That is the first one. Secondly, we're in a generation, student affairs used to be a, a humanizing a, a space and it, it's long gone. You see, student affairs has been a threat to the existence of students. That is the problem. Secondly, Prof. Peterson used to have engagement with us as students, you know, and if you seen that time, there were no violent protests on campus. We were able to engage with university management. We're no longer having those talks, you know. Maybe Prof. is maybe is busy with international stakeholders, you know, but I, 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 maybe I can appeal to Prof. to say that maybe we need those engagement with Prof. Peterson you know, and the relevant stakeholders of the university to engage on issues, because there are certain things that we protest that can be resolved just with engagement. That is the first. And secondly, when we protest sometimes, sorry, thirdly, when we, when we protest, sometimes we, we need university management and instant, they respond with police. They respond to security guards, you see. So that is the level of, 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 of of arrogance that we are getting from the university. If you check the history of the University of Lafayette in Bloemfontein, we are not violent students. We just want an engagement with management. Sometimes you can even come to our faces and lie. For as long as we see your faces and you, you make sure that you are here in front of us, because we know you've been lying to us. Thanks. Thank you very much. I promise to be quite brief and, and very fast. Um, but as a point of departure, uh, the juice is expired. Uh, the, the, the refreshments that were being served, it, it, it shows a level of lack of oversight on the side of the organizers. Please attend to that. But as an input, as a, as, as a, of course, it's here. And in an event that the, the highest official of the university attends, it's quite disappointing. But of course, Prof, I have quite precise questions, Prof, that I'd maybe love response from, particularly from the Vice Chancellor. Prof speaks of three categories, categories of protest. Number one, he says peaceful. Number two, he says dis disruptive. And then number three, he says violent. And then he says that at the University of the First State, 
the universities accommodative to peaceful protest and a certain level of disruptive protest. You see, that, that, that statement of a certain level is a bit vague. Would like to get clarity as to what then constitute the acceptable level of disruptive protest that is accepted, accepted at the University of the First Side. Because, yeah, if you stand at the gate and make the new thing, the immediate response is police. So I don't know, maybe we don't understand the stages of ex escalation of a protest. And then, of course, the, 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 the last and the least, last but not least input that I'd like to give is that it seems that the university is engaged in a project to discontinue student activism at the University of the First State, particularly because the, the highest office in the land releases a protest and it released an article entitled it protest against protests. And the contents of the article lacks, lacks the appreciation of the fact that the people that are termed criminals in this protest are emotive individuals. And when you deal with emotive individuals, you need to appreciate that at a certain state of engagement and, and, and all of these frustrations that we tend to face at the rest of the first state, emotions becomes uncontrollable at some stage. But what leads to that is the kind of response and the structural setup of engagement that is at the rest of the first state. Proudly, the, 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 the highest structure prides itself in promoting engagement. But the lack of appreciation is that there's a rigid structure that is in place for engagement. So before you reach Professor Francis Peterson, there's a very hierarchical structural setup that is there. And if it is not appreciated, they ignore you. So if students feel like the structure in place is not representing them, there is no flexibility as to what other channels can be explored. So if that is looked into, maybe it will quickly, quickly assist us as far as promoting the engagement is concerned. But as a last input to the platform, let's appreciate that in a setup of, 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 of protest. We're dealing with emotive individuals that might be frustrated by some of the things that they are facing. And if the response that is given, it's a criminal response, it will definitely amount to disruptive and even more criminal actions on behalf of those emotive individuals. But let's get the level so that when we leave here, we're able to protest within the levels of disruptiveness that's acceptable. Thank you. There was a hand, but uh, I had recognized the fifth person. Yep. Um, thank you very much, uh, Chain Session. Um, I just want to ask a question to Prof. Peterson. Actually, I need a preliminary perspective on this. So usually protests escalate to violence in an Usually, protests escalate to violence when students are faced with violence, arrogance, and level of insensitivity from uh, various departments and stakeholders. Because, and I like the fact that you mentioned, Hore, you take accountability for the police shooting and throwing grenades at students. And so there was an instance at uh, Steve Biko whereby students were waiting for the response of the memorandum and you ordered the police to throw a grenade. So in, my question is, who is wrong? Is it the students or the departments or the police? That's my submission. Before, before we, 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 we also need to bring the others uh, who are here. Um, info, in fund. 
you can you can you can you can you can speak into the mic okay Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon, Prof. Peterson and the panelists. My name is Sonipa. I was a former student at the UFS and also formed part of the SRC a number of years back. Um, I joined today because I was very keen on the topic. A question that has come to mind is something that I've thought of even at the time when I was still a student. And what I'd always wondered was it felt it sometimes during protests, it feels as though. Um, the students are protesting and we are, this protest is against or yes, it is against management. And sometimes it might come across as though management has never been um, that the people in management or in rectorate have never been students themselves. Right. And my question has always been that when did the disconnect happen? Was there never a time where they as well as students were unhappy about certain aspects or things which were happening on their campuses. And if there was, um, which I believe they were, how did they handle those situations, right? Because it feels as though whenever there is a protest, that there is an upset, that this is not the way that we should be doing things. So the question that I'm posing is, what is the preferred manner that they will respond to? Because whenever there's a protest, it's as if they are against it, and that they don't want to be helpful in that instance. So the question is, what is the preferred manner that they would like um, students to approach them in, in which they will be responsive and helpful in that instance? Thank, Thank you, so you very much. much. Thank you so much for that question. You've just been given a round of applause here. Thank you. Prof. Peterson. I think um, most of these questions were aimed at you. Yeah, I should have been part of the panel. <laughs> uh, um, so, 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 so let me first make a make a few comments because I think there's a couple of questions that cut uh, uh, cut across. Uh, which I so I'm not going to respond to each of the questions individually because some of them are are, are cutting across. I, I want to start off. Was the uh, was the last? I think it's info fund, if I remember correctly. Uh, uh, sorry, funny, slowly, slowly, Okay, so um, uh, you know, I obviously also was was a student, and 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 the way that we uh, and and I think you probably have to to look at 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 the time frames in which these sort of things happen. I was a student before Rose was fallen and Fees was fallen. In fact, I was acting VC at, at UCT when when these happened, these two. So I engaged directly in the in uh, with the students uh, during that period of Fees was fall and Rose was fall. But the way that we normally articulated our concerns were through engagement. Uh, and I said it was a different period uh, where we were unhappy we also, our level of acceptance was probably a little bit higher. Uh, uh, um, and and we, if we, if there were things that we were unhappy with, we were trying to try to understand what were the issues. Uh, were our requests unfair? Uh, um, or were our requests things that management was just deliberately not acting on? And I can tell you, management during those times were less, much more less inaccessible compared to today. You know, you were 
you couldn't actually even engage with the rectors at during that time. So it was a different time frame, but our approach was 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 really to understand why our requests were met, um, and uh, the the protest at that point, uh, if it if it was emotional, never actually turned violence. Uh, so, but I think what 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 really uh, have changed the. The, the 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 type of the protest the the type of the protest was probably roads must fall and fees must fall it was a a different type of protest that that happened uh, and and I said I was caught up in the middle of that uh, and the roads must fall started at UCT the fees must fall started at Wits and and I uh, um, uh, engaged with uh, Professor Adam Abib over the weekend of the 18th of October, uh, because often these protests start either at Wits or UCT, and then it then it moves to the other the other universities. And I knew it would have come to University of Cape Town, and and uh, but but I didn't expect the um, the way in which it actually panned out uh, and the level of 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 uh, uh, um, the number of students that that were involved. So I think it was two different time frames, and that is the way that we looked at it. And I was obviously as a student uh, in engaging with Rose Must Fall and and Fees Must Fall. My memories of 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 student activism also came to the fore, but it was different. Uh, so I I wouldn't like to to suggest that one compare it exactly. But let me let me come back to some of the other questions that came and I think I, I, I haven't seen all of the students but I know Jerry Talker's uh, uh, um, uh, uh, voice also be amongst the two I think it was Jerry or not uh, uh, that are some of these specific questions uh, um, first of all for me when I talk about uh, a protest and and I want to I want I emphasize the whole issue of engagements and I have a different uh, view of uh, um, the level of engagements that happen. Uh, um, I do think that student affairs and other structures in place are in place to be able to deal with that engagement. And 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 no no, but give me give me an opportunity to respond. And I is it is it, is it okay? Uh, um, I, I I want to say that. When when I was at UCT and also yeah uh, in the initial stages, uh, um, all the 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 protests would come to to me in terms of demands, uh, um, and I would respond to them. I would engage with them, uh, um, and and I think some of the student structures have have have, in, have indicated that. What I what I then said is that. For me, it's important to, under, to, to, to get a sense that the people that can make the decisions are as close as possible to the executive. It shouldn't be only the vice chancellor, because I'm telling you, the unions are request, would request that, the academics request that, and yes, I have to get international funding too, uh, uh, because otherwise, uh, uh, um, uh, um, we're not going to have the quality of what we can offer in our laboratories, our computer. So, so I need to do that. Uh, and 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 I I, I said to I said to our uh, our executive, our rectorate, that I want to get the voice of the student as close as possible to the executive. And for that, we restructure the executive. We've actually brought the ED of student affairs. Now, uh, the ED of student affairs, the position 
we brought as a direct member of the executive. So I don't need that I don't necessarily need to be there at all of the meetings. I engage with the ISSC. We've got monthly meetings, I think, with the ISRC, uh, um, as the same way as I engage with the unions in our monthly meetings, the HAWU and UFPASU. And, and I try to do that also with, with the deans and where we have heads of departments. So I just wanted to say that uh, um, where, where I can, I will engage, uh, but it's not a deliberate of not engaging with you. It's also to try to optimize the time and to make sure that your voice gets to the executive as 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 directly as 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 what we can before the structure the student affairs portfolio reports to a dvc which then come to the rector and we change that so i think uh, um and and if we need to improve on that we should improve uh, it's not that the rector has got a policy of not engaging uh, uh, with with uh, uh, people that bring a, 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 a memoranda, it is just to make sure that we optimize our time. Now let let me come back to Jerry's specific uh, 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 request uh, in terms of the protest. So I I said that effectively what we would like to see is a peaceful protest. All right, and and we do get peaceful protests. We got uh, uh, protests that, uh, um, and and there have been many of those protests. I don't want to take examples, but I think when we're looking at the gender violence protest, the safety protest, all of those protests that happen. In fact, I joined some of those protests as we as we talk to to government and so on, uh, um, and those are peaceful protests. It's processes that bring across the issues uh, um, in a way, and we follow up on those issues. Then there are disruptive protests. And disruptive protests for me is that we spend quite a lot of time develop, as you say, coming back guidelines, how one would look at disruptive protests. Because in disruptive protests, as you say, protests have got an element of disruption, but I also have to make to have to assess when that element of disruption is 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 just too high, because as as some of the other panel panelists have indicated, that my responsibility is also to students that do not uh, 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 um, uh, protest, staff that are challenged in terms of of protest, and 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 there is a trauma element the the same way that 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 uh, um, uh, that uh, um, uh, I forgot your name. Joy, the joy, have have talk about the trauma. Uh, the same way is 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 the trauma that people that hasn't been in protest. We also have to recognize, and 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 you know, for 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 me and that has been in protest for me that have managed protest to a certain extent. Uh, um, uh, that in the was in the midst of roads must fall and fees must fall. Uh, I, I I can I can deal with that. But I can tell you, not everybody can. So my my role of executive role is to balance that disruptive nature, and and I I, I think we try to put that into a, a protocol, into a guideline. Uh, um, but 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 it it is not a a very objective way of or I would say it's a sync way. But I want you to study and to go through that guideline, and there is where we have to balance those two rights. And that would be my role. And, and I don't buy, I sincerely don't buy emotions that can drive you to harm other people and to harm assets. I don't buy that argument. 
And in fact, in my statement, in my the article, I deliberately talk about that uh, um, because we need to call that out. We can't allow people to 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 burn down assets because we are here, staff and student. Because I said you are the institution, we are here as custodians of the generation that comes after us. And we have now students that probably haven't been part of the protest that are now putting pressure, rightly so, on the management to say, when are you going to fix the clinic at Kwakwa? Now, what do I say? I, I can't say, I can't say those, you know, those are students that have, have, have burned it down. That I would never say. I will say, well, give us some time to, to, to fix it because it's not my responsibility to fix it. So I don't buy that argument of emotions uh, because that, that for me is, 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 is a cop-out in a way to explain why you can do criminal, criminal uh, actions. That is obviously not acceptable. And, and, and I, I, uh, I've got two, two other uh, – if, if, if we suppress activism, then, then, then I would like to – I don't want to become defensive – in that, I would like us to. I like to understand why people would say that, and 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 maybe we're wrong. Maybe maybe we're doing things that 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 suppress activism. So let's talk about that. Let's 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 get to the to the bottom of it and, and try to say, well, I would like you to raise your voice. And and you know, uh, um, uh, one of the things. And one learn when you at other institutions the same way that the joy have 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 also got learnings as it comes from Rhodes. I brought learnings from UCT in the middle of those campaigns. And when I arrived here, I said that we need to establish a unit called institutional chains. Because we can't let that the rose must fall in the feast must fall campaigns be in vain. We focus heavily on gender-based violence, sexual assault, uh, and sexual harassment. We focus on the issue of decolonization. We focus on the issue of how to de not to criminalize students. And I talked about how the, the different tiers, so that the police is the last option that we would call on. We also talk about how can we create the student voice. Now, we created that. We expanded Senate, we've got council representation, we had our faculty councils, we create an institutional multi-stakeholder group of Bellamy, because one of the things that came out was, was, was power relations. We balance power in that, where we got all the voices. It's not been taken up by the students, effectively. Now, what I would like to know, and that's not probably not for this afternoon, but I would like, as I say, I'd like to understand how do we suppress activism. I also would like to understand maybe, and that's a point that Joy have made, maybe you feel that if you if you fill the seed, you are you are actually not eating as part of the table, but you 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 allow to to run away with crumbs. And that means we have to understand the role in the which we manage those meetings so that your voice can be heard. Because those opportunities are there. And that is what we created over time. Uh, um, now, and, and, and I think that is, that is probably what we need to do a little bit more. And then finally, uh, uh, um, uh, um, 
uh, Chair, the, 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 the whole issue of, and I, I think I talk about the engagement of the rector, you mustn't see that as arrogance. I, I have explained that. But the responsible or responsibility of leaders. Uh, um, and I think the point that one of the students, I couldn't, couldn't see in the back who made it, but uh, um, that if you lead a protest, your responsibility is also to ensure that nothing goes wrong in that process. That's the that's the essence of leadership, and and I can tell you in some of the other uh, protests that we that we did that was peaceful, we 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 make sure that 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 happened. That is because that is that is the accountability that should come back to those who lead uh, the the protest. So, Chair, I I know that there might be others that you think I haven't responded to, but but those are some of the things that I picked up. Thank you. Right, there is, um, thank you so much, Prof. Um, there are some comments. Okay, um, generational thinking, thank you so much. The cost of disruption is high. Um, Can you not meet Zanzele Mleche? I can't raise my hand. Zanzele, you have the podium. No, no, thanks, thanks, Chair. Uh, thank you. No, thanks for this uh, <clears throat> for this session. I think it's a it's a very good session, and we it really teaching us something. Um, I've just got I've got few points on my side, and I don't think it's it, it's questions per se, but. I, I think one of the things uh, that we we always take for, for granted is the attitude of the of the employees when the students are going on strike. Um, we've got uh, some of our colleagues that always see uh, students as um, uh, as they are disturbing their their working environment. But also as uh, as criminals, I think I think those are the things that uh, maybe Prof need to talk to in terms of then how do you conscientize the the work the, the staff of the university to understand that when when this this protest this protest are not directed to to the to the workers or to the employees, but also it's not for the employees to decide how the student should protest. I think that's the first point, and I think it's important because you've got you've got employees who will, once they, they, there's a protest, then they throw their toys out, and then they start to see this student as, 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 as problems. I think also it, that attitude and that tendency also, it's it, it somehow rooted to, to our past, which is more on the apartheid. I will put it that um, the finance, I always say that um, we've got, especially in the University of the Free State, the University of the Free State is not the university that, that you can say it's always protesting and it's got a violent protest. Okay, maybe except the, the Congo campus, but in Bloemfontein, really there's no protest, but the brutality of the police and the brutality of the security sometimes, uh, uh, I would think that the senior management, when they invite these police and the, and the securities, they really need to engage them in terms of how then they should handle that protest. Because 
it becomes so brutal. I mean, in such a way that we we, we at some point think that because these are black students, you know, you you know you know blacks are criminalized in this country because these are black students who find themselves that the heavy handed of the police really don't assist. So there's a responsibility in the management to make sure that they engage these security companies that come to the university and, and, and the police. Um, uh, the finance department, the finance department needs at some point, uh, Chair, to, we really need to transform the finance. I'm not sure how, but the, the finance department really is not pro poor our finance department. It's it, it most of the time, the decisions that, that they take, you, you could see and feel that it is the people who really un- don't understand where our people come from. Um, uh, uh, we are always facing, the, the, the student protests are always about the same issues. We know very well that come January, these are the issues that we will able, that, that we will be dealing with. But you've got you've got a, a finance department that is rigid in terms of their decision making. They will only start to to give in when the students are going out of the street. We know very well what, what is going to take the student out of the street. But as 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 the university and particularly the finance, uh, 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 we don't prepare ourselves to address those issues. It will all all the time after the pressure from the students. So I, I'm always saying that we've got a finance department that is not pro-poor. We've got a finance department that care that, that care less about the life of these students. I think that will be my comment, Chair. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to uh, exercise the Chair's discretion. I saw three ladies. Um, sorry, Prof. Joy, is it three ladies or three females? Three women, sorry. I saw three women who raised their hands. We, we, we are just then going to take the last three and then we'll then request uh, uh, Professor Hudson to close. Just the three ladies. Number one, you are a woman. And then there are two at the back. And that's it. Oh no, he says it's fine. It's okay. He says it's wrong, but it's fine. Yeah, think, 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 think you leadership. Okay, thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, good afternoon, Prof. I've been listening to most of the comments or other sentiments that are shared by the UFS management. And what I want to speak more about is because I've been listening to Prof mentioning responsibility quite um, numerous times. And I sat here questioning myself then, what is the difference between responsibility and one of the UFS values, which is responsiveness? And with this, I just want to emphasize on the approach that the UFS management uses um, with, with regards to the, the meta in question, which is protest, right? The approach of the institution, and I stand to be corrected, is wrong. In a manner that I've been listening to the responsibility that the institution has to ensure that such situation when they prevail, they are dealt with this in, 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 this, in whatever particular way. And according to the definition that I have here, responsibility is duty, which is the state of being responsible, accountable, or answerable. And then when I compare it to being responsive, 
responsibility, uh, responsiveness uh, basically refers to the quality or state of being responsive. Now, when these student issues emanate, or rather when stud uh, student protests happen, it is because of the um, fundamental issues that um, 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 students face, of which are humans. And these are not issues that are abstract, that you can ideally construct and I mean, basically portray a picture, but these are real issues. And in the approach, the approach of being responsible is wrong in an extent that it's not ideal, but we are dealing with actual issues here, social injustice issues. And if you're gonna speak about your, 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 your access, which is something that the, the university also speaks about, access to education and support services, these are not issues that require the university to be responsible, but rather to be responsive. Respond to what is presented to you, respond to what is currently happening. And we sit in these meetings, Right, um, like Prof already mentioned, that they bring, they try to bring the students closer to the executive, and the approach that is being used there is the approach of being res uh, uh, responsibility. They, 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 things are done from a point of being uh, responsible, you know, dealing with a certain issue or you know that kind of a, of, of an issue. And those issues they don't require that; they require you to understand. What is it that is happening? What, 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 what exactly are these issues that are being presented with? When we speak about NSFAS issues, we don't speak about something that we constructed ideally in our heads. We speak about the number of students who cannot register at that point in time. We speak about a number of students who doesn't have the necessary basic needs that they, they require. So such issues, they don't necessarily require the, 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 the management to be responsible. They require you to be responsive, which means understanding on a deeper level, the context of which these issues are being expressed or being experienced by the by the, by the, the student populace. I think with that, I'll wrap it up. Thank you. So the difference between responsible and responsive. I'm coming to you, Deputy President. Thank you, Chair. Um, I think. <laughs> In uh, my my, I don't know if it's a question or whatever, but um, I think one of the problematic things about dialogues like this is that whenever people come and present, the presentation are always so good and they're always so promising. But whenever we leave the space, things go back to where they started or the way they were. So my biggest issue is that for a university that believes so much in engagements. Uh, and we, uh, Prof. Peterson spoke uh, of how they are willing to engage with students. Um, when I reflect back like to when I started being the student in this university, the university have proven time and time again that they're not willing to engage with students. And we see proof on, on campus uh, of such things. For example, when the leaders are organizing a protest, uh, if maybe the poster was released today, tomorrow 5 a.m., the Sarafina police truck will be here and the big dogs. Um, the, that police truck that looks like the one that Sarafina used, um, the hippo one, it will be here. And now the problem is that the university doesn't, the first st statement that the university will release or prof will release is that uh, we are aware of uh, disruptions that are happening on campus. Uh, it will 
point fingers in terms of student, uh, we don't commend this behavior, we'll investigate such incidences. Um, now, the first response is they criminalize the students. They make students look like criminals. It's never an issue of we note your concerns and we are willing to come to you and, and speak on this and this and this. So now um, one of the comments mentioned on the fact that this university, the students, and I'll talk uh, specifically on the Bloemfontein campus, we are not um, students that have violence. And uh, I, I, it, it's also a problem that the, the pro, prof also spoke on leadership and how leadership is responsible. And someone that, as someone that has been led by leaders in a protest in all of these years, I've experienced leaders trying to calm the students because the students are the ones that are usually angry more than the leaders. And sometimes we find students saying, let's ban something so that the university responds quickly. And it will be the leaders first that, no, guys, can we please take this measure and what, what. But even when the leaders try so much to keep the students uh, calm and not be violent, the university does not um, respond or try and take a little bit of accountability. Now my problem, with, uh, not a problem, what I've noticed with the uh, speakers as well is that um, uh, some of the panelists is that we, we, they, they act like they understand when the students protest. But the, 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 the presentations here are so, I don't know, are so shady because at the, like, they don't understand because at the same time it's like, what I'm getting is that there is no sense of accountability from the university's side. It's always pushing, the, it's making students feel like they are wrong in how they are doing. Just one more, just one more, I, I promise I'm done. So my, my, my question or my submission was that, how is, is the university, how is the university planning to respond to the students? Because so far they haven't responded to the students. It's always them making the students feel like they are wrong for protesting. Can they now put measures in place to make sure that they respond? Can they come talk to us, not the big dogs and the police and the Sarafin? Dr. Chola, don't, don't, no, Dr. Please, please, please. No, I must speak. Hey, Bo. <laughs> Greetings to everyone. Mine um, is a comment to uh, Student Affairs. You know, I've been a student activist for seven years. I'm from okay. University of Pretoria, and I also came here. And luckily, I, I was led by Prof. Bora. And to be honest, um, sorry, yes. Honest, this is the first time in my life I feel like student affairs is so distant from students. We cannot even lie. We all sat here and we spoke how uh, students of University of Pretty, of, of Bluefontein campus, how we're not so uh, violent. We spoke about that. But since when? We have caught interdict on campus. But if we are honest with us each here, Management, the student affairs is not student orientated. They don't come to students. We we meet, we get we meet big dogs before we meet uh, management of this campus before the student affairs. 
and we cannot lie to ourselves. So my message is to Mr. Muema, please go back to the department and humanize it. He spoke about humanizing here. Please go back and humanize the department. Your department is not humanized to students. You guys don't know, you're not student orientated. Please go back and do what's right. You are a student orientated. If you want to work for, if you want to work for management, you must tell us. You must so we know that when next one if issues we don't come to you, we know where to go to. We can go to main building. We can wait outside main building until uh, Prof Peterson comes out. But to be honest, you guys are the the reason why we have a violent protest is because of student affairs. You guys are so inhumane. You don't respond to students. You guys, you don't. We must hear, we must hear that no, we have SGO, ED, that ED, and Andazi. I'm not gonna, I don't know. I thought she was going, he was going to be here, but he's not student orientated. The first thing he did when he got to campus was put a door because of he's scared of protest. You guys are anti student, and you must not lie to yourself. You are the reason why we are here, even though we are going to be told that we must protest against, against protesters. You are the reason. Please go back and humanize the department and be human and, th and think for the students. You're a student, you're a president, you're not acting like one now. It's very disappointing. Thank you. Um, the women have spoken. Um, so, so um, colleagues, we, 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 we've heard, and I think there is going to be a, a, another session organized, obviously, through um, Mr. Muema's office, where you would then be able to ventilate on some of these issues. But at this point, I would like to call upon Professor Heidi Hudson, the Dean of the Faculty of Humanities. Good afternoon. Oh, let me stand here. Good afternoon. I'm tempted to say I'm going to repeat everything that was said, but I won't do that. I won't be very popular. Um, <laughs> when we as a faculty decided to, to talk about something that was also weighing on our minds, um, in the faculty it was under the surface and somebody had to say it. And this is also why we are here today. And I want to thank the lecturers and the academics who had the courage to come today and to speak about their experiences. What we wanted to do was an academic experience because this is what we do. This is who we are. And we wanted to give a sense of the different kinds of angles of looking at protests. And I know that we haven't even touched the surface or scraped the surface. But I think that we have achieved something because we've heard, and I know this is your reality, the, the, the protest on campus. So, of course, naturally, that they will decide and also take uh, the legal force in that regard. So, the stats from an inch are also. But there is no interference. Not staff assist. Again, I'd not planned to go there. We all shall service that's provided. Didn't Most of the speakers have, have a history. As students, where you have a group of Bellamy. Text, you have a family. And also talking about diagnosis, it made me think about the body. Protest is fundamentally entwined with the body. And we cannot escape that. And the body may seem, when we do our journeys through these protests, may seem like a mundane event. But you reminded us that with the mundane, with the everyday, we also have the spectacular, what you described. 
So colleagues, but ultimately, what does it boil down to? The question is, what makes us human? And this is why we are here in the faculty. And of course, anybody who wants to join us in that conversation is welcome to be here. I just want to conclude by asking whether you've heard of the palm wine drink it. Not drunk it, drink it. But the boy did like his wine. Um, Nigerian writer Amos Tutola, who wrote about the palm wine drink it. And in this book, there's a story about the complete gentleman. Now, there was this beautiful girl, and her parents were looking for a husband for her, and they sent all the suitors to her and all the eligible young men, and she pulled her nose up. Didn't want any of them. But then this complete gentleman arrived. He was just absolutely perfect. And she said, that's the one that I want. And the parents said, no, this one is trouble. But she left with him and soon discovered, and now this is not a gender issue that I'm, uh, don't analyze it on a gender level. <laughs> it's got a different message. Then she discovers that this complete gentleman was actually just a skull. But the skull went from place to place and borrowed various body parts, the best shoulders, the best legs, the best this, the best brain, whatever. And then when he got hold of this girl who is now following him, he had to go and repay his debt. So he went back to each one who gave him an, a, a limb or a, an organ, and he returned the organs. Now, the organs, I'm talking about the body parts. Now, it's extremely gory in the way that it's being described. Then he returns the liver. Then he returns the kidney. And eventually, he's reduced to a skull that hops along but still keeps the beautiful girl captive. Now, it's an awful story, but what is the message? The message is that none of us, no one is complete. Nobody is perfect. I'm not perfect. The rector isn't perfect. Nobody is perfect. And once we realize that we're not perfect, we have to say, I am dependent. And I'm not using liberal language to talk about interdependence. I'm talking about dependence. Then once you recognize that you are dependent, then we begin to talk to each other. And then we say, let's find the common purpose. Now, what is our common purpose at this beautiful place that we call Kofsis? Lecturers need students, otherwise they won't get a salary at the end of the month. We do need our, our customers. We want to teach. And I think you also want people who are committed and who will give you the best possible education. So there's the common purpose. So let's not get stuck on the protest. And I know it's important. There are real issues. There are needs in the communities. But let's focus on the positive and how we can work together. So thank you very much to the speakers, to everyone present, to our online audience, as well as our real vir uh, audience, virtual and real. And then to the chair, you had you were in the hot seat, but it's done now, and you did well. So um, I look forward to the next engagement, Mr. Moema. We will be there to join you, um, colleagues. Thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of the evening. Thank you.